0: you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 3, if you haven't already turned there. My name is Dave Furman, I serve as the senior pastor here at Redeemer. If you're new to us, we are in the third week of our series in the book of Leviticus. You'll find the whole schedule of upcoming sermons on the sermon card, you either saw that on your seat as you came in or received that in a bulletin, if you got a bulletin. Take some time to look through that, pray for upcoming sermons, take a look at those passages before you come on Friday, maybe in your devotional times throughout the week, Thursday evening, Friday morning, to prepare your heart to come hear the Word of God heralded. I have one question I'd like to ask as we get started this morning. What is your greatest need What is the one thing you need more than anything else? Maybe you're thinking, well, that's an easy question. I need a job. I'm out of work. Jobs are important. I grieve with many of you who are without work right now, and I pray that the Lord would provide you a job. But that's not your greatest need. Some of you think your greatest need is to find a spouse. If only God would provide me the man or woman of my dreams, then I'd be happy. For those of you in school, as the school semester or school year gets started, all you want is a friend. You want to be known, maybe even popular in school. Or for some of you, your greatest need, you think, is that you would get high marks to get into a good university. You may believe something else is your greatest need. It could be a new item that you saw at the mall, a more stable bank account, better health, to be reunited with family. There are days when I live as though my greatest need is to be healed of the nerve disorder in my arms. What is it for you? What is your greatest need Leviticus 3 gives us some insight into this question and shows us the thing that we all need the most, regardless of where we're from or what our circumstances may be. Your greatest need and my greatest need is the same. It's peace with God. The Bible's clear that on our own, we are not at peace with God. All of us are born in enmity with him. This isn't something we like to hear. No one wants to hear that they're God's enemy. Many just don't believe it. They think they're naturally good. There's the classic sentiment, me and God, we're good, we're okay. We have an understanding between us. He knows I'm doing my best. I try hard. That's good enough. Last week I was reading a book, and I just happened to read another story about Lady Huntingdon, Selina Hastings. This hero of the faith keeps popping up in my personal reading. As I mentioned last week, Selina lived in 18th century England, and she had a unique ministry to the nobles, to people of royal lineage. She once sent a note to the Duchess of Buckingham, inviting the Duchess to hear George Whitfield preach. And Selina received this reply from the Duchess. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. The Duchess was appalled. The thought that she was a sinner like everyone else was sickening to her. She wrote back to Selena, appealing to human logic. We're of high rank. We're of good breeding. We can't possibly be sinners like those other people. But the Bible says that we're all in the same place. Whether royalty or not, our so-called breeding is exactly what David had in mind in Psalm 51 when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The Duchess's high rank was actually a stumbling block to her. She couldn't see that her heart was just like those common wretches that crawl upon the earth. We are all commoners in need of God's grace. If you're new to the church or you're new to Christianity, the Bible tells us that in the beginning, there was only God, and then he created everything, the whole world, everything in it, including You and me. The first two humans, Adam and Eve, were made to live in relationship with God. They were in perfect peace with their creator. Enjoyed perfect fellowship there in the garden. Until the day they decided that that relationship wasn't good enough for them. And so they rebelled. They rejected God. They attempted to take control of their lives and make their own laws. And everything just spiraled downhill from there. Romans 5 tells us that we're all enemies of God. Colossians 1 says we're hostile to him. Every one of us is born into a state of alienation from God. The posture of our lives from birth is against God. We don't love him or love his rule in our lives. We despise his word. We contend with him. Now, how should the almighty creator respond to the willful rebellion of his creatures? How should a holy God repay us for our sin against him? What do we deserve for our cosmic anarchy? Unless something changes, we are not at peace with God. The Duchess of Buckingham is right. To be told you're a sinner isn't good news. But it's true regardless of our earthly status. Deep down, we know it's true. This is why we try so hard to make things right with God. Some of us turn to philosophical teaching, some religious systems. Others try to please God by doing good works. We try to do good enough things to earn enough favor in God's eyes. Some offering literal sacrifices to appease God. Some go to other people to find peace. In 1964, Joshua Liebman wrote a book called Peace of Mind. It was the number one New York Times bestseller for over a year straight. Liebman was hounded by people after his book came out. Phone calls, written letters asking him to help them find peace of mind. He tried to help everyone who asked, but he was eventually overwhelmed emotionally and physically. He couldn't handle the burden and died of a heart attack at the age of 41. 41. No sinful human is capable of giving peace to other sinful humans. The legal case against us for our sin is insurmountable. The Bible is clear that the wages of our sin is death. At the end of our lives, filled with hostile relationships, wars, and rumors of wars, and unappeasable turmoil in our own minds, we all die. And afterwards, face God's righteous judgment. We don't have what it takes to obtain peace in this life or in the next. But. But God. Psalm 78 teaches us how God treats sinful people who come to him for forgiveness. We read that God being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. And did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. God made a way for his people to come into his presence. This is what we see in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is good news for us. It was through atonement that God made a way. These sacrifices that we've seen in chapter 1, in chapter 2, and now in chapter 3 were given by God to make make a way for his people to have true peace. The believers in the Old Testament were given the sacrificial system which was honored by faith in the promised one to come, who would be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. In order to have your sins atoned for, you brought the burnt offering. We saw that in chapter 1. Then the grain offering in chapter 2 was a response to what God did for you in the burnt offering. It's an offering of worship and thanksgiving for what God has done for you in delivering you from your sin by offering your best time, talent, talent. And treasure. Once you do that, you can now do the peace offering. And here's the main point this morning. Again, just one main point, and then we'll walk through the text together. The main point is this The greatest treasure in the whole wide world is peace with God. If you recognize those words, they are plagiarized a bit. They are the words of the great Australian children's musician Colin Buchanan. You can live for happiness or live for stuff, but it's all going to fade away. But you'll never ever feel like you've got enough because it's all going to fade away. The trickiest toys the money can buy, it's all going to fade away. The greatest treasure in the whole wide world is peace with God. You could actually say that's the point of all the sacrifices or even the point of all of Leviticus. It's people who are who are enemies of God, being made to be at peace with that same God. But you'll see it a little more specifically here in this, the third offering. Let's look at chapter 3. Then we'll look at chapter 7, which further explains the peace offering. Leviticus 3 falls into three paragraphs. Josephine read the first one. All three are very similar. They basically are grouped by the animal that's being offered. Verses 1 through 5 talk about offering up cattle on the altar. Verses 6 through 11 show us how a sheep was offered. And verses 12 through 16, goats. That little extra distinction between sheeps and goats that we don't see in the other offerings is likely because the fat of the sheep includes its fat tail, which the goat just didn't have. One difference from the burnt offering is that the entire animal wasn't burnt on the altar. Only certain parts were given to God. Look at verse 3. The fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Now These aren't just random facts. These aren't just words that were to skim over because they don't sound like they matter God had a specific purpose in telling them to do this. Both the kidney and liver had significance to the Israelite because the Hebrew language used bodily organs to describe their emotions. Your kidneys were the very seat of your emotions. They represented the will. By offering it up to God, you were in essence surrendering your own deepest emotions and intentions. You're burning your emotions and your will. Not my will, but yours be done, O God, was the idea. The liver was the heaviest organ in the body. It's very similar to the Hebrew word for glory. The term for glory connotes a weight, a heaviness. There's a pun here. You were burning everything that makes you significant on the altar. You're saying to God, to death be my glory, so you, O God... Could have it all. The liver was also used by Canaanites in pagan worship for divination. The priests would grab the liver of animals, they'd examine it to determine the will of the people. They were looking to tell the future. Archaeologists have actually discovered clay models of livers at ancient Canaanite burial sites. So the one true God told his people don't save that part of the animal. Don't use that for divination. Don't use it for anything else. Burn it on the altar. And so when you were burning the liver on the altar, you were telling God, I'm not looking to the liver or anything else to tell me my future. I'm trusting you, O oh God, with my life. So you burn the kidneys, you burn the liver, and you would burn the fat, the fattiest portions of the animal on the altar. And this was important because the fat was thought to be the most valuable and Choicest part of the animal now today we try to avoid fat we aim for fat-free and low-fat diets there's reading this week whole 30 and gluten-free and paleo diets i can't keep up with all of them i even had a friend do a juice cleanse this week i don't even know what that is there's an emphasis on avoiding fat there's an emphasis on doing specific diets to help us do that but back then for the ancient israelite meat was a luxury It was a luxury most couldn't afford. It was the best part of the animal. The fat was a delicacy. The fat added flavor. They were told, give the kidneys, give the liver, give the best, fattiest portions. Give your best to God. The priests would then splash the blood on all sides of the altar. The life of the creature was its blood. And since the altar represented God's presence, the worshiper had a vivid picture that a life, was offered to God. There were a couple other differences with the early burnt offering. No birds were used, likely because they were too small for a worthwhile meal, as we'll see in a little bit. And both male or female animal were acceptable. We don't know exactly why. Biblical scholar Gordon Wenham thinks it's because the burnt offering was more fundamental more important, because without it, you couldn't have the other offerings. Without atonement, the other things couldn't come. We don't know exactly. We also don't know how often the sacrifice could be made. The book of Leviticus doesn't tell us everything. It's not an encyclopedia. It doesn't give us every little detail about the sacrifices. It's not a manual for offerings. It's doing something theological. It wasn't your guidebook, but it wanted you to see that you were to live your life for God. Everything you have, everything you do, was to be done for God. In this particular offering, the worshipper brought the animal to the entrance of the tabernacle. The worshipper would likely explain why they were doing the sacrifice, then he would or she would lay their hand on the sacrificial animal, showing the the transference of guilt from the person to the animal. Well, why this particular offering? Well, those Leviticus 7 verses tell us that there were at least three reasons you would come to do this offering. The first is for thanksgiving. God's done something in your life. You were amazed that God answered one of your prayers. He provided you something. And so you're offering some thanksgiving to God publicly, giving him the glory for what he's done. Second reason was the payment of vows. In these cases the person was paying off a vow of sacrifice that they promised to God for his work. In the book of 1 Samuel, Hannah brought 3 young bulls, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine in payment of her vow for God's providing for Samuel. The third reason was a free will offering. It was simply a general expression of your love for God. Now however, the most interesting thing about the sacrifice wasn't the sacrifice itself, it was what happened after you sacrificed the animal. This is the one sacrifice where you actually shared in the portion with God. In the grain offering, you burnt up everything. Or in the burnt offering, you burned up everything. In the grain offering, you gave a portion to provide for the priest. But here, here in the peace offering, you actually took a portion of the offering for yourself. Now remember, the greatest treasure in the whole wide world is peace with God. Now, why is this the greatest treasure? Well, friend, it's because peace with God gets you God. It's because peace with God gets you God. Peace with God means that while you were separated from fellowship with Him, that which separated you has been dealt with and has brought you back together with God. Your sin is atoned for. Peace with God isn't just some feeling in your heart. It's a state of being. You get to be with God himself. You get to have fellowship with God. This was symbolized by you eating together with God at the entrance of the tabernacle. By your faith in God displayed in your obedience through the sacrifice, you could have peace with God. Now we have peace with God through Christ, who is the perfect and final sacrifice for our sin. Colossians 1.20 says Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. Ephesians 2.14, which was read for us earlier, says Jesus is our peace. Romans 5.1 says it clearly. We have peace with God through Christ Jesus. But the offering is a sign of reconciliation accomplished. It's peace, but it's actually more than that, or at least paints a vivid picture with, of peace and what it looks like with another party. It actually brings two parties together. The word that's translated peace offering in our passage is not the exact same word that's normally used for peace in the Hebrew. It's the same root, but it's, there's a slight variation. It literally means that there's no longer enmity between two parties, and that they could come together and enjoy unhindered fellowship with one another. That's why some of your Bible translations may actually say fellowship offering. It has the idea of a deep, abiding fellowship. Two parties, now at peace with each other. Friends without any barriers or hang-ups or baggage or bitterness or awkwardness. It was an illustration of that peace. You would then eat together with that person. Eating with someone was a big deal in those days. A meal with someone carried a special significance that many of our cultures have lost today. Back in ancient Israel, a meal was a sign of a covenant relationship. So you'd agree to some covenant with someone, and then after you did that, you would sit for a meal. You'd enjoy a sign, a manifestation of that covenant. You simply wouldn't eat a meal with an enemy or someone that you were at odds with. In the peace offering, you get God. You get fellowship with him. It was a reminder of what life should be like. It's a reminder of what life was like back in the garden when Adam and Eve had perfect, unhindered fellowship with God. It's a foreshadowing of the perfect, peaceful fellowship that we'll have with God in the new heavens and the new earth. You get God to be with Him, to enjoy Him like you were made to do. And maybe what's most astounding is while you get to enjoy God, you get God, you get to enjoy the full benefits of fellowship with Him, so does God. It actually pleases Him. You enjoy being in God's presence, and God enjoys being in your presence. I mean, just consider this, friends. Some of us, when we walk into a room Maybe it's first day of school. Maybe it is your first day here at Redeemer. Maybe it's a new job. You walk in and you can sense at times that your presence isn't welcomed or invited. You have no one to talk to. No one greets you. Well, think of this. Think of God, the Almighty God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who created everything. His holy, he is fully Perfect in every way, this God delights in our presence. Friends, this is astonishing that our great God would delight in us. The text says that it was a pleasing aroma to God. In fact, we saw that in chapter 1, in chapter 2, and now in chapter 3. God invites us into his presence and it's pleasing to him. The Lord establishes these sacrifices because he enjoys it. It brings joy to him. I can't even wrap my mind around this. It is a pleasing aroma to God. Friends, that's the ultimate goal God has for his people, that we would worship him and enjoy him. And God is the creator God who made everything including us, and he made us to enjoy him. The greatest being in the universe made us to enjoy him. Every time we try to get our security, significance, comfort, or ultimate happiness from anything else, we are missing the only one who can truly bring us joy. Why would we be, as C.S. Lewis says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea? We are far too Easily pleased. God hasn't merely given us a holiday at the sea, but he's given us himself. Eternal fellowship with him, nothing is better than that. Our earthly pursuits are like playing in the mud compared to what God has for us. This is what we were made for. It brings God pleasure because he knows that when we find our value and worth in him, we enjoy the greatest pleasure imaginable. We all want peace. Every single one of us wants peace. Let's stop looking for it in the wrong places. Again, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you think when your earthly debt is finally paid and the collectors stop breathing down your neck, then you'll be at peace. Or if your boss starts treating you nicer... Or better yet, your boss just leaves or even gets struck by lightning. <laughs> then you'll be at peace. Or if I just get picked from that sports team or ministry at church or club at school, then I'll be okay. Or if my health issues go away or if my body finally looks like I want it to look, then I'd have peace. Maybe you do want to be right with God. Maybe that is your greatest need, being right with God. But the way you're going about it is trying to please him by doing good work after do, doing good work after good work after good work after good work and everything is failing you. What is it for you? What present reality is your hope for peace? The only way you can get peace from God is if you're at peace with God. God. The only way to truly receive the peace that comes from God alone is if you're at peace with Him. If you're here this morning and you don't know this peace that we speak of, this peace which comes from Jesus and because of Jesus, I urge you to consider the fact that your sins are against God. We don't merely make mistakes, our problem is not simply that nobody is perfect. Our biggest problem can't be solved by money or time or positive thinking. Every last one of us is guilty in God's courtroom because of our sin. None of us can get out early on parole for good behavior. And none of us can fight for a lifelong sentence of leniency because all of us deserve a death sentence. And in reality, we're already spiritually dead. We were born that way. But... But the peace offering described here in Leviticus 3 points us to the ultimate peace offering. Those cattle, those sheep, those goats all pointed to Jesus, the one perfect sacrifice who ended all sacrifices. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to the earth, was without blemish in every way. He was perfect, lived a perfect, sinless life and marched to the cross. And he too had his blood splashed on the altar where he took the full wrath of God and took upon all the sins of his people upon himself so that we could be at peace with God. He came to give us the greatest treasure in the whole wide world. Peace with God. If you don't know this peace, this good news, you can. Come to Jesus, it doesn't matter your past, doesn't matter your present, because if you come to Jesus, he will secure your future with him now and forever. To come to God, you must repent of your sin. Turn to God saying that you are a sinner who's transgressed him and to place your faith in him for salvation. And it's not a temporary peace he'll give you. It's not a momentary, ever fleeting peace. It's an eternal peace. Friend, God delights in his people coming to him. It is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But that's not all we see in the sacrifice. You know, each offering gives us a little different taste of the goodness of our God. It's like a beautiful diamond. You could look at that diamond from different angles and see just a little different glimpse of its greatness. It's the same with God. Each offering gives us a little different glimpse of the characteristics and attributes of God. Here, the peace offering shows us how much he loves his people, how much he enjoys fellowship with his people. But it also shows us that he's concerned about fellowship between one another, between you and me. It's interesting, we see in Leviticus chapter 7 that the offering had to be eaten up on that same day. All of it. I mean, just imagine an entire cow, minus the liver and kidneys and choicest fat portions. That whole cow had to be eaten that day. Now, no, I know I've said it, as many of you have said it when you're really, really hungry, that I could eat a horse right now. Well, friend, that's not true. I couldn't really eat a horse. Neither could you. None of us could eat a cow by ourselves, no matter how much we liked food. And even if we pulled an all-nighter that night, we couldn't eat an entire cow by ourselves. And yet none of it could be left until the morning. And so what you would do is you'd invite your family. You'd invite your friends. You'd invite the poor who couldn't afford to eat. And you would throw a big party right there at the entrance to the tabernacle. Now, Here's what the peace offering would teach you. How could you be at peace with God... But not at peace with others who also have peace with God. It's hard to understand how you can be reconciled to the God of the universe, yet at the same time not be reconciled to one another. This unity isn't supposed to happen among God's people. We don't look down on certain people groups. We refuse to harbor bitterness in our hearts. We don't withhold forgiveness. Reconciliation flows from being reconciled to God. The Lord's Supper is an image of this truth. We take part in a meal in God's presence together, symbolizing our unity in the Lord. And every time we gather with another brother or sister in Christ for a meal in our homes or at a restaurant, it's a display of this truth. When we eat with people, talk with them, laugh with them, listen to them, it's an expression of peace. Friend, how is your fellowship with others in this community? Do you treat them like fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, equal in God's family? A real practical thing, do you fellowship with people from different nationalities? Different socioeconomic groups? Are there any people or cultures that you look down upon or even despise? Is there someone you need to apologize to for whatever reason? All who are in the family of God are at peace with God and are meant to be at peace with one another. If we're reconciled to God, how can we not be reconciled to one another? One man has said that the kingdom of God is like a party. God intends to celebrate his work, but not by himself. He'll do it with us. With the people of God, rich and poor, family, strangers, friends, Pakistanis and Filipinos, Nigerians and Chinese and Kenyans and Sudanese and Indonesians and Indians and Canadians and and Germans, what God has said in Ephesians 2 is that he has knocked down the dividing wall of hostility between us and himself and between us and one another. That that dividing wall of hostility is gone. Brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, we have nothing that should divide us. God has made peace with us, and he has made us to be at peace with one another. O family of God, heaven will be the greatest party. Heaven will be the greatest party because there will be people from all tribes and tongues and nations, people gathered together from all times and all places, from all walks of life, all treasuring Christ perfectly. Redeemer Church of Dubai, let's enjoy a shadow of that reality here on earth. In the words of songwriters Keith and Kristen Getty, Oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit, in faith, and unity. Where the bonds of peace, of acceptance, and love are the fruit of his presence here among us. The greatest treasure in the whole wide world is peace with God. Let's enjoy that with God and with one another. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for the greatest gift you could give us, peace with you. Would we as a church enjoy this peace that we have, and would it overflow in love and affection for one another? Would our church be marked by unity, grace, and forgiveness? For we've been reconciled to you. How could we not be reconciled to one another? Father, help us. Help us enjoy peace with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.